If you are able, please stand to show reverence to the Lord as we join in hearing his word. Our Old Testament reading this morning is Jonah chapter 3, verses 1 through 5 and verse 10, found on page 775 in your pew Bible. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I will tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Our New Testament reading is Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 20, found on page 836 in your pew Bibles. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. morning, church. Please join me in the uh, prayer for the word. Father God, we thank you for your goodness to us, and we thank you for your provision. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness to us, Lord. Another week, we gather as your people, Lord, to worship you and you alone. As Tyler mentioned, you alone are worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship. And so we gather together, Lord, to give you that worship and also, Lord, to be moved by you as you have been moving in our hearts through your Holy Spirit. Continue now as we listen attentively to your word, the word that you have for us, 
And let us, Lord, by your strength and your power, apply your word into practice, into deed in our lives every day that you may be glorified. We pray and ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, we are given God's word through two passages that are very well known. And they're well known for many, many reasons, and I'm sure you've heard sermons about them many times in your lives. There are a plethora of lessons and sermons, I think, that we can draw from both the Old and New Testament passages this morning. Our Old Testament passage comes from the well-known story of Jonah. And contrary to common perceptions about this story, the story of Jonah is not just about how a man is miraculously saved from the belly of a large fish. The story is about a man who, like us, wrestles with whether he can obey God or not, whether he can love his enemy or not. It's a story about a man who's willing to abandon even the calling that God has given in his life because of the internal struggles that he faces. It's about a man who finds himself wanting to follow his own way rather than the ways of God. And most importantly, it's a story about God, about how God compassionately leads Jonah to see and to understand his salvation. Our New Testament passage comes from the start of Jesus' earthly ministry. And as he comes into Galilee, he proclaims the gospel message and he calls men to follow him and be his disciples. And in the passage, we encounter one of the most well-known sayings of Jesus. He looks at his first disciples and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Right? It's so cool. And we see two brothers leave their job immediately and follow Jesus. And we see two other brothers leave their father, their family, everything they know to immediately follow Jesus. And indeed, God is so great that he can save us from anything, even the belly of a large fish. And indeed, God is so great that we should leave everything to follow him immediately. But what I would like to emphasize this morning, what God has put on my heart this morning, is a message that both Jonah and Jesus proclaimed, and that message was of repentance. Repentance is a sensitive topic, and it's a topic that doesn't seem to get much spotlight these days in the church. I think there's more spotlight, there's more emphasis these days on love and inclusiveness, social justice, politics. Yet, it is a topic that is integral to the church and integral to the daily lives of us as Christians. It is so integral that it's part of the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. And many great preachers are known for their sermons about, about repentance. Preachers like Spurgeon and Billy Graham and Jonathan Edwards. It is a topic that runs 
throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is something that is required by God, required by God of his people. And if you're a Christian, then you probably know what repentance is. Or do you? Let me tell you uh, what dictionary.com says repentance is, how it states it. According to dictionary.com, repentance is deep sorrow, compunction or contrition for a past sin or wrongdoing or the like. Or repentance is regret for any past action. Of course, repentance is being sorry and feeling deeply sorrowful and guilty for an action and, and even feeling remorse and regret about that action. But that's not all that repentance is. Repentance is more than just a feeling of guilt. Repentance means turning away from that sin and turning away from that action and desiring to do it no more. It means admission of your wrong because you understand and you believe in the moral standards of God. You no longer dictate what is right and what is wrong. And you realize that. And in repentance, you are confessing that God is right. And that is why repentance is a biblical term, not a worldly term. Because it's something that can only come from God. And it's something that only God can lead you to. And we see this in the story of Jonah. If we look closer at the story of Jonah and the message that Jonah carries with him to the land of Nineveh, we see that he didn't actually proclaim a message of repentance. He actually only said eight words. And in Hebrew, it's only five words. He says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's all we read about Jonah's message. But we can infer that repentance must have somehow been part of this message of Jonah. Or at least it was insinuated when he was proclaiming this message because we see the response of the Ninevites. The Ninevites immediately respond in repentance. We read that the entire city went on a fast. They wore sackcloth, which signified their guilt and sorrow. And when the news of Jonah's message reached the king, even the king began to fast. Even the king put on sackcloth and put ashes over himself. And the king even took it further, and he decreed that not only all humans should fast and put on sackcloth, but every living creature, even the animals and the livestock, every living thing should repent. And then he told everyone to cry out to God, to cry out to the Lord. But is this why the Lord forgave and relented that disaster upon Nineveh? Because of these outward showings, these outward expressions? The Lord is not moved simply by outward expressions. Putting on sackcloth and fasting would have shown an outwardly desperation and remorse by the Ninevites. But we read in verse 10 why God forgave the Ninevites, why he relented that disaster. Nineveh was the capital of Assyria. 
And the Assyrians were known for their ruthlessness and sin and war and bloodshed, their idolatry and false god worship. And it's as if they knew that it were these actions that would have caused God to punish them. And so the king decrees in verse 9 that everyone should turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in the hand and, and the violence that is in his hands. And we read that it is this action, this repentance, this turning away from evil that causes God to relent disaster. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, right? Not how they put on sackcloth, but how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Interestingly, the words for repent and for relent in English are also similar, but repent and relent or to have compassion, they're actually play on words in Hebrew as well. They both come from the root word nakam, which is both what the Ninevite king speaks of in verse 9 and how God portrays his compassion in verse 10. The Ninevites respond to God's message by nakam, by turning away, by repenting, by turning from their evil ways. And so in verse 10, God responds by nakam, by turning away or relenting the punishment, the disaster that he had intended. But there is a deeper meaning in this text. There's a deeper meaning in this passage. The repentance of the Ninevites was prefaced by their belief in God. The text tells us that Jonah proclaimed this message and they believed in God. And so they repented. In his commentary of Jonah, James Bruckner, he says, Assyria was known for its false gods and its self-worship. And now the king himself commands them to call urgently on Israel's God, whom they have already believed. It was the belief, the faith that was given to them, and their understanding of who God was, that he was the true God, that his moral standard was the true standard that brought them to repentance, that brought them to a realization that what they were doing was wrong. So we see here that once the Ninevites believed in God as their true God, that is when they turned away from their false gods and their idols and the ways that they once thought were true, the the ways that they thought were right. You see, we all think we're right. We all have some kind of standard, whether you believe in God or not whether you have a moral code or not. Everyone believes that what they do is right, and that's why, they, that's why they do it. Deep inside, somewhere in there, no matter what you do and where you are, everyone believes that they're right until they encounter God. You see, the Ninevites encountered God, and they believed in God, and what they once thought were things that they did right, right? Killing and and conquering and worshiping these false idols. And they thought these were good things to do, right things to do. But once they encountered God, they threw them all away. 
They surrendered their will. They surrendered their understanding of themselves and what they thought was right. And they allowed God to direct them. And so true faith and true belief, a true understanding of the one true God, leads to a true repentance. And this repentance then leads to turning away, nakam, turning away from sin and turning to God. It leads to a life of surrendering your own will, just like the Ninevites did. Surrendering your own way to God's way. This repentance is what was preached by John the Baptist, and it is the first words that are recorded of Jesus' earthly ministry. You could say that Jesus' first sermon was about repentance. In verse 15, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And this marks the ministry of Christ. Of course, we are only able to repent because we first believe. And we believe because we have been given faith by God. And our hearts have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. We can confess Jesus Christ as our Savior because we have been already given this gift of salvation by God. And it is by grace alone. And because we are born again and we are a new creation, we live a life of repentance from the sin that continues to lurk in and around us. I think that reason the topic of repentance is not so popular in the church is because it seems to bring only gloom and doom. When you, when you hear a sermon about repentance, you feel guilty about yourself and, oh my goodness, I did all these horrible things. How did the pastor know I did all these horrible things this past week? And especially with the growing awareness of mental and emotional health, I think talking about repentance seems to, like a bad thing because it just brings about guilt and makes someone uncomfortable. And that's not good for your emotional and your mental health. Yet, throughout the Old and the New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, we are called as Christians to live in repentance. I'm going to say it one more time. We are called as Christians to live in repentance every day. Some might unknowingly think or believe that repentance is it's only for non-Christians. It's only when you become a Christian, right? It's only at the point of conversion. Or it's only reserved you know, for the times when you do something really, really bad. That's when you repent. When you've done something so, so horrible that God is like, oh, I'm not going to love you anymore. Oh, I better pray repentance so that God keeps loving me. I think we sometimes become confused about what repentance is. Or maybe you think, oh, repentance and confession, oh, we do that on Sunday. And that's enough. This is the biggest issue that John had 
with the Jewish leaders, the religious leaders of his day. And in John's ministry, when he was baptizing people at the Jordan River, he calls out the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Jewish leaders. And we read in Matthew 3.8, he looks at them after you know, cursing them a little bit. And he says, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. That was the problem. The Jewish leaders, they knew everything about God. They knew the Torah. They went to the temple and did the sacrifices and they did everything that they were supposed to do. They followed all the commands. But they didn't bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Their love of themselves and their desire to be their own saviors prevented them from truly knowing God or following him. True repentance doesn't come from legalism. And it doesn't lead to legalism. Rather, it comes from knowing the grace of God and it leads to a life of surrendering the self and following God. This is the contrast between Jonah's understanding of repentance and compassion and mercy and then the repentance of the Ninevites. It's the contrast between Jonah's justice what he thought the Ninevites deserved, and God's justice. And this is greatly depicted in the parable that Jesus tells us about the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke chapter 18. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, the sinner, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The way that we live our lives every day in repentance reflects what we think about God's grace. If we don't live in repentance, we don't need God's grace. If we think that repentance is only for those folks who are non-believers or it's reserved for a day in the week, then perhaps we don't understand God's grace because when we repent, we know that repentance, of course, involves us. But repentance isn't about us. It's not about me. It's not about me feeling guilty about something. It's not about me, oh, look at all the bad things that I've done. And so I'm going to try to do better now, God. You can count on me. Or even worse, maybe we don't even feel the need to repent. Oh, that's not too bad. Oh, God, you know what I did 20 years ago. That, that was bad. Uh, what I did last week, that wasn't too bad. I don't need to repent for that. 
You might struggle with a bad habit or maybe you get angry really easily. But lately you've been good. So I don't think I need to repent. Is your prayer to God, God, look how good I've been. Look how well I've been, you know, conquering this sin. I didn't even do this and this this week. Look how good I've been, God. Or is it God? Thank you because by your mercy and without your grace, I could not have overcome this sin. Without your grace, I could not be where I am. Repentance shouldn't be about us. It shouldn't be about our feelings of guilt or beating myself up all the time, nor is it boasting about our efforts to overcome sin. Repentance should always point us to Christ and the grace that God has given to us. It is perhaps feeling guilty. It is lamenting and turning away from sin. But it is a reminder of God's grace to us. When we come to an understanding and conviction of how great our sins are, like the tax collector, then repentance leads us to understand how great God's grace and His love is for us, like the tax collector. And when we are filled with joy and thanksgiving that comes from understanding this grace, the forgiveness of our sins that God has given to us, then we are energized. And we are spurred on to surrender ourselves to God and live according to His purpose. And so talking about repentance and living a life of repentance is not bad for your mental health. It's not bad for your emotional health. It's good for your emotional health if you understand God's grace. It's good for your mental health if you understand God's grace because it causes you to rejoice at what God has done for you. It causes you to live with more motivation for Christ, living in his purpose. In speaking of faith and repentance, James Edwards Jr., he says, coupled with the command to repent is the command to believe. If repentance denotes that which one turns from, belief denotes that which one turns to, the gospel or the grace of God. Both verbs in Greek are present imperatives, that is, they enjoin living in a condition of repentance and belief as opposed to momentary acts. Repentance and belief cannot be applied to certain areas of life, but not to others. Rather, they lay claim to the total allegiance of believers. The world says, oh, repentance, oh, that's an icky word, that's... It's shameful. It's bad. And the world sees repentance as something that's negative, something that's bad. However, in the kingdom of God, repentance leads to life and to happiness, to purpose, to identity. As Christians, we must continuously examine ourselves and live lives in repentance because this causes us to live in humility before God 
and before others. Not that we are constantly lowering our self-esteem. Like we're not just beating ourselves up and making ourselves, you know, we're, that's not what we're doing. We're not putting on a mask of false humility. But that we are constantly seeking to allow God to change us, to make us more into the image of Christ, to lead us each way in our lives. Then we will live in grace, love, and mercy that God has given to us. We will live with more joy. We will live with more gratitude, even in the midst of our trial and our suffering, even when it comes to our enemies. We will come to love God more in our daily lives and let go of the things that try to drive us away from God. We will grow closer not only to God but in living lives of repentance we will grow closer with each other we will love each other more we will learn to forgive one another we will bear each other's burdens and we will grow in our understanding of one another and the unity that God has given to us we will grow only when we live lives of repentance and so, brothers and sisters, let us not be afraid to come before God in confession and repentance, but let us come confidently knowing it's, it's not a guess, right? When we come before God in humility, when we come in true repentance before God and confess our sins, it's not, it's not a guess, right, whether he's going to forgive us or not, right? I, I, spoiler alert, he will forgive you. He has forgiven you already through the atonement and the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let us daily live our lives in repentance, that we may glorify our God, that we may come to love him more, and that we may come together to love one another, each other more, and live out the unity that he has given to us, to a watching world. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you with humility and we come before you because, Lord, you have saved us. Through your son, Jesus Christ, you have given us a new life. You have made us born again. You have made us into a new creation. Yet, sin continues to lurk around in our broken world, in our broken bodies. And so, Lord, we, we pray and we ask that every day we might humbly submit ourselves before you. That we may grasp your grace to us more and more each day. As we live in repentance. Fill our hearts with joy and with gratitude. Help us to live according to your word. And when we don't, lead us, convict us to come to you, to turn to you, to not come, to turn to you in confession and repentance that by your strength 
and by your guidance, we may again live out our lives to your glory. We pray this all in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.